0: This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The moment Francis Stewart's new book, Punk Rock is My Religion, Straight-Edge Punk and Religious Identity, came to my attention on Twitter from follower at Dan Jones. my knowledge of the straight-edge subculture, its moral code and values, which are do not partake in drinking, drugs, smoking, or casual sex, and my academic interest in religious studies were piqued. As a social studies and English educator with a specialization in religious studies, who also happened to grow up playing drums in punk rock bands, the allure of a book combining punk rock, sociology, and my interests in teaching social studies and religious studies made the book too personally fascinating to pass up. Punk rock as religion and religion as punk rock might seem contradictory to an outsider, but having personally forsaken pious priests on Catholic altars for a screaming and sweaty frontman on a punk rock stage, the idea of the subculture of straight edge as, quote, religion... Seemed shockingly plausible to me if it were presented to portray the transcendent experiences of punk rock and its community-oriented social structure. When I read the title of the book, instead of scoffing, I raised my eyebrows instead. I was never personally straight edge, but looking back on my memories of what I saw as what I saw the straight edge people doing and saying, Stewart's thesis of straight edge as a surrogate of religion, while also pushing the boundaries to quote. Further the study of religion from a critical perspective, that's from page two of Stewart's book, it made sense to me. Can straight edge be religion? Here is my chat with Dr. Francis Stewart from the University of Sterling. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I'm here today with Dr. Francis Stewart, author of Punk Rock is My Religion: Straight Edge Punk and Religious Identity. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here.
0: Can you introduce yourself and your work a little bit for the audience?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm from Northern Ireland. So I grew up in just outside Belfast. And I became interested in, in punk in my teens um, through some of the animal rights activism that they were involved with, because hunting is still legal in Northern Ireland, it's not in the rest of the UK, but it is in Northern Ireland, through some of the bands that were playing, and then friends would have their bands and I would help out, and the usual story. But because of the, the situation that we had in Northern Ireland at the time, it was it's civil war. The, the punk community is very small and we were connected with the anarchy community so I was connected up with them and given books to read and, and so on. One of the things that they taught me was the importance of education and that teachers are the ones that change the world. Hey! Hey. Um, it was actually um, oh no, i forgotten his name. It was, it was Penny from Crass who, who actually ultimately said that. It was a, a video that he would filmed, and they, they played in, in the Anarchy Centre, it was called the A Centre, way back in the 80s. And I'd watched the video in the 90s. And he, he comes out comes out with a statement uh, referring to Northern Ireland, oh, you're so right. Uh, so from there, I, I went into education. And I taught in a high school, which in the UK is from the ages of 11 to 18. Uh, so I taught in a high school, uh, inner city high school, in for seven years. And then I came back to do my own education to finish that. And I always had the intention of moving into academia to teach there. Um, And then in the UK, when we do a PhD, we have to propose an idea. So it isn't that someone has an idea and then gets funding and brings in a a student. We have to propose the idea, then we have to get the funding and we have to get someone to agree to supervise us. So I put forward this idea of looking at Religious identity within Straight Edge, the community I'm a part of. Nobody knew what Straight Edge was, so the the response was, go do that. Do that on your own. Um, Yes, fine. And Sterling were the only ones who were excited, so I did my PhD at Sterling. Excellent. And that brings me to the book. Excellent.
0: So for the uninitiated, because I have listeners from all over the world, so for an Mm -hmm. uninitiated person, what is Straight Edge? And what are some of its key ideals? Why do you care about Straight Edge? Um, So let's hear a little bit about that.
1: Okay, so Straight Edge is a subset of punk, specifically hardcore punk. It was created by Ian McKay, who then was a teenager and was the lead singer of Minor Threat, a band from Washington, D.C., one of the best bands of hardcore in the world ever. And one of the, the songs that he wrote was called Straight Edge. And it was designed not as a call to arms, not as some sort of rallying cry, but it was just a, this is me, this is who I am, this is how I live. And he was showing that for him, drugs, alcohol, pursuit of sex over anything else is, is actually just as, as problematic as issues like sexism, racism, um, transphobia and so on. And so his his response to this was, I don't need those, I have the straight edge. The straight edge was a name that he took from his ruler that was lying on the desk, which is just the best story ever. Uh, And even if it was not true, I'm now deciding it is true. So he took this name. Um, So many punks heard this, uh, particularly young teenagers. Um, For them, this was something that really spoke to them in a way that nothing else had before. They either saw themselves in those lyrics or... They saw themselves and the type of life they wanted to have. Quite a lot of them came from backgrounds where there was drug and alcohol abuse within the family. So they're looking to break cycles of abuse. But again, that's not all of them. So those who are straight edge, they self-commit, they self-identify and they self-regulate by following three key criteria. The first of which is, is no alcohol. So there's no consumption of alcohol either as a drink or as within food second is no no drugs. Uh, that one is interpreted quite broadly. So for some it is no illegal substances. For others it includes no drugs of any kind, including medication. For others there's an issue over tobacco, over uh, weed and things like that. So it becomes slightly more porous with the second one. And the third one is no casual sex, which again is also Broadly interpreted, some will say that is no sex outside of marriage, others will say it's sex within a committed relationship.
0: Excellent. So what I wanna know now is so I notice on the front of your book that you have the words religion and religious, which ties you into this show, which is mostly about religion, but this is kind of a different take on religion. So um can you describe one or maybe a few moments where straight edge started to look religious to you. How did you bring those two concepts together and make that connection over time?
1: The first time I became aware of that, it was again, it was from growing up in Northern Ireland. So the civil war that we had there, we call it the Troubles. Um, it's it's two communities who are strongly divided. and uh, One of the ways in which they are divided is on religious differences between Catholics and Protestants. And punk would take no part in that. So punk was a mixture of both, which doesn't sound very exciting. But in the midst of a civil war, that's a huge deal. And one of the straight edge bands that I became aware of in 93, 94, they used to walk around with, um, on, on the back of their shirts, handwritten on the back of the shirts, statements about religion and how divisive religion was and that they didn't need it. And they borrowed from the Ian McKay lyrics, and is, we don't need religion. We've got the straight edge. Um, and they used to work away with that one. So I became aware of it in that sense initially as a teenager. I then became aware of it in my twenties. Again, I would go to shows, and um, in in Manchester, I'd moved to Manchester, which is in England. I would go to shows, and there was a feeling that I couldn't I couldn't put it into words, but I could talk to my friends about it, and we were all experiencing this. We thought it was the music, but Because I'd grown up in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland is very, very fundamentalist, very evangelical, so everybody goes to church. So I was very aware that it was a similar sort of feeling that people talked about having in a church that I'd never experienced in a church, but was experiencing in a bunk show. And then in in the start of the book, I I give the two events that happened that really then made me decide I need to now leave high school teaching and move into academia and just go and sort of look at this closer. The first was the anti-flag show in 2005 where there was this huge sense of, of community, this sense of the numinous, something beyond something that doesn't really have words, the ineffable and then being given the the, bu- the book Dharma Punks, um, which is written by Noel Levine, by the little Buddhist monk in, in the Manchester Buddhist Centre you know, he was so sweet um, and it was those two things coalescing.
0: Excellent, and you know what's so funny is I made my notes in the very beginning of the book um, that I also saw Anti-Flag the exact same year that you did and Chris um, the bass player of the band did, does that at most shows mm-hmm. like I've seen them a couple times in the yeah. last 10 years and that is like a ritualistic thing yeah, that, that he does yeah
1: yeah, I completely agree and ritual is the perfect way to describe it
0: yeah, and um, there's also um, that, that transcendent feeling where you are just completely uh, mindfully present in the moment and nothing else in the world matters than what's happening outside the four walls of that room that you happen to be yeah. in with that crowd and those bands.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when you when you take that into something like Northern Ireland, where outside those four walls there are bombs going off, people are being shot, and the person you're standing next to, and you know that's a Catholic and I'm a Protestant... That's a huge feeling. Yeah. That's that's amazing.
0: And you know that one person's going to the other side of that line, and you're going to the other side of the line at the end of the show, and you're going to be splitting based yeah. on that sectarian difference.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So uh, in the book, I was struck by the dedication to a man named um, Edward Ian Bailey. And this is somebody I had never heard of, but who I became familiarized with throughout the course of the book, and this is so interesting. So your work is inspired a lot by Edward Ian Bailey, to whom the book is dedicated. Who is he, and what should people in religious studies, like academia, what should they know about his work around the term implicit religion?
1: So Edward Bailey, he was the Reverend Canon Professor Edward Bailey. Um, He was a, a Church of England... Canon and an academic, I think at Cambridge or Oxford, I've forgotten which, possibly both. Um, And he, in the 1960s, at the time when religious studies was sort of being diminished because of the secularization thesis that had come about, he at the time said, well, actually, there is something within that secularization thesis that we need to take very seriously. We We can't dismiss it. There is something going on. It's... The conclusions of it are wrong but what we need to pay attention to is what can we find in the secular that would help us to explain the religious. So he still keeps the two th- spheres separate which I disagree with but for him it was we need to we need to try and find out what is there in the secular that shows us something that explains the religious but may itself be functioning like a religion. So it is, it is a very functional approach and um, it wasn't actually him that named it Implicit Religion, it was his wife, uh, Joanna. Excellent. She called it Implicit Religion, and, and the name stuck. And he wanted to call it different things. Uh, so he wrote his thesis on this in the 1960s. And since then, there's, there's been a very small group of people dedicated to the study of Implicit Religion. Um, and they meet once a year at the Implicit Religion Conference um, in the UK. And they, they all take it in very different directions. A lot of them come from a theology background, them. So they will view it in, in that way. And then you have younger ones like myself who take it from a sociology of religion perspective and we see it as a set of analytical tools. And um, There are three analytical tools that he provides us. So the first thing you look for is what are people within the group that you're looking at? What are they committed to? Then the second thing that you look for is it, taking that commitment into account. How does it help them to integrate different aspects of their life to give a coherent sense of self. And then the third thing is utilizing that commitment. What concerns are driven to such an extent that they are compelled to act? So it's a very different way of understanding religion. It, It takes away the whole debate of, is this a religion because you have a God or because you don't have a God? Is this a religion because you follow certain rituals, you follow a dogma, you follow an institution? It's a really different way of understanding religion. And it allows the space in which that subculture, that group that you're looking at, exists in its own right, and matters in its own right, rather than as a pretend religion.
0: So um, this must have exploded your own understanding of what religion can possibly be, right? Did this, like, expand the universe, so to speak, for you, as far as religious studies go?
1: Yes, very much so. I... For me, I met Edward at the very end of my PhD. So in, in the UK, a PhD is about four years. Um, you're, you're only given that long of the time. And if you don't do it in that time, that's it, you're not doing it. Uh, so I met him in the very last year. He came to a talk that I gave um, at a British sociology of religion conference. He was the oldest man in the room and he asked the best questions. Nice.
0: Um, what you, you mentioned that you disagree with something that he stated, that, and it was the separation of the secular and the religious. Is that right? Yes. So what do you disagree with him about on that?
1: I don't think those spheres are separate. Why not? I don't think they are self-contained separate spheres. I think that they are both created by us. They are something that we create. They are a category, and categories are not rigid. Categories are fluid.
0: Excellent. I love that because I, I agree. Like one of the things that I'm always interested in is how can we think about religion differently, and this has really given me a framework to kind of think about as well. Um, how does implicit religion matter to people that have no interest in like institutions like churches or mosques or synagogues? like, um, does this open up the field to people who don't have any interest in like what we think about as a religion usually?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the, the the reasons that I'm able to do the work that I do. You know, because if I was to rock up to um, a theology department and say, right, OK, I'm going to play you the sex pistols. I'm going yeah. to play you some minor threat. They're going to kick me out as quick as they can. You yeah, know, they're not interested in that. They don't see the value in that. But if you can come up to them and say, well, actually, look, there, there's a sense of commitment that is at least equal to, if not deeper than notions of commitment to a deity, to a sacred text, then you can start to talk in their language. And they they kind of understand it in that way. So there is a a sense of it working as a, a means for academic discourse. But I don't think that's where its value lies. I think its value lies in that it takes seriously the individuals who are within different groups where they're at. And that's what religious studies needs to do. It needs to take those individuals seriously.
0: Nice. Have you blown some people's minds at conferences talking about this?
1: I think more playing the music has done that.
0: Excellent. I love that. Um, so now there's another term I want to talk about, and this is this is the term surrogacy, religious mm-hmm. surrogacy. And this is put forth, um, as far as I could tell by a scholar with the last name Zayelkowski. Is that right? Zayelkowski. Okay. So who is Zakowski? So
1: Zayelkowski is a, a literary theorist. He's from Russia. And um, he took the idea of if we examine how religion is treated in literature, we can find this notion of a, a set group of people and one of the things that he doesn't engage with is the fact they are very privileged people um, at a very difficult period of time as he's looking post-war um, so in between the First and the Second World War. So privilege matters then in, in a way that perhaps it wouldn't do now with the internet and so on. Um, but he says they, they come up with these surrogates, things that will function in place of religion because religion doesn't work anymore. And he has five surrogates that he offers. Um, He offers uh, art for art's sake, travel, socialism, myth, and utopia. And he ultimately concludes that they all fail because they can't replicate what religion does. So I I took his idea because I like this idea of of a surrogate because I think there is something about the notion of a surrogate. We talk about it in, in regards to birth. Um, We talk about the idea of nourishing, of carrying a life for someone else. But there's something that we don't talk about, which is the fact that the surrogate is used because the the original is defective in some way. And if you could fix that or if you were able to have a choice, you wouldn't have a surrogate. That's not to diminish the amazing work that surrogates do. So what I did was I said, well, I like this idea, but I disagree with how you have understood surrogacy. We should go back to the original meaning of the word, which is subrogate. And subrogate means to succeed. What comes next? And that, that's really what interested me. If religion is failing, as people keep saying it is, if you know, for different reasons, then what comes next? What takes its place?
0: Do you see religion as failing around the world?
1: I think it depends on how you define failing. Right. I, a lot of those that say it's failing, they simply look at the attendance of churches. Well, that, that right there is problematic, because if you were to look at the attendance of mosques, that's rising. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's, a, there's an issue with how we define failure. Failure for me would be when you have those who are in power using religion or talking about religion or corralling religion into a very confined space and using it to, in some way, brutalize, demean, diminish other people. And in that sense, yes, I think religion is failing. Interesting. Not them.
0: Yeah, so now so we have defined our key ideals of straight edge and we have defined implicit religion and we've defined surrogacy. So how can a sociologist of religion step into a hardcore show, find a straight edge group, and then watch a ritualistic act play out in front of themselves?
1: Well... The first thing I do when I when I do this with my students is I get them to watch the Sick of It All video, um, us versus them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's done like a little sociology documentary. Okay, do you remember it? Yes. So it has um it has the little the little character, low man who's having some sort of moral crisis, and he's he's going to report on you know this this vile demonic thing of, of hardcore punk, and he goes down into the club and sick of it all are playing and um, it is literally done like a sociology video so they, they take you through these are the different types of dances and somebody performs them mm-hmm. and of course they have to mock the west coast because they're east coast <laughs> um, but then it kind of pulls back a little bit and you see the circle pit open up you see stage diving but you see people fall and other people pick them up so i, I get my students to go through and pick out right what are the sociological markers of all of these things going on in the video and at the very end of the video, um, Pete and Lou come up to him and said, know, oh, well, what did you think of that? Oh, it's not so bad, that hardcore punk. And he's completely changed his mind. And that's, that's what sociologists do when they become engaged in the field. So that's how I would start it. And then I, I will take them to shows. Um, if there are shows that are available and they're willing to come. That's the second biggest issue. Nice. Um, or you can assign it as, as a, a thing, go and, go and watch a, a show. Um, and so we get into look, well, what are the visual markers? You know, we're going to be wearing t-shirts with bands on them. We're going to have X's on our hands. Some of us have tattoos. You know, so we start to look for that. What type of ritual behaviours are we going to be engaging in? There's, there isn't just the circle pitting. There's the symbols that we make with our bodies. Those that don't want pulled into the, into the pit will stand in a certain way. To say, you know, I'm here and I'm a part of this, but I don't want, I don't want to break my legs. Thank you. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So I get them to look for that the callback and the response from audience to singer, the way those sort of interactions, the, the head walking, the type of, of postures that people pull is very, very materialistic, very embodied. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that I get them to look for. And then we talk about it. And once they can become comfortable with that, then I'll get them to start looking at the space. So how is the space decorated? What messages are being given through the graffiti, through the posters, uh, through the way in which uh, Gilman Street, for example, there is Repeating on the walls, and then people have started to reply to it, and then others have replied to the replies, and there's whole conversations going on. You know, so we we start to look for things like that.
0: Excellent. Um, so I, now there's just so many things that I'm thinking about. I'm having all these flashbacks. Like one time I went to CBGBs, and there's like this like layer. there's like layers and layers of stickers that were stuck to the wall, and you could like rip down one sticker, and like fifty stickers would come after it. <laughs> And I'm also thinking about, like, you know, sacred spaces now, you know, and how whenever everybody comes in, there's the community aspect that so many people get through traditional institutional religion. And everybody, you know, makes a will walk in the door and they'll make a beeline for their, their certain social crowd that they sit by at church. Or people will walk in the door to show and they'll make a beeline for people that they recognize. And then you have that, hey, how's your week been? And it's been that ordinary catching up that you get in so many traditional mm-hmm. style religious institutions. And you can see these things play out.
1: Mm, absolutely.
0: So... Now I'm curious about conferences a little bit. So whenever you go to a conference and you present on your work, um, how do other professors react when you get up and make a paper presentation? You start talking about these kids with X's on their hands who are wearing like Youth of Today or Earth Crisis T-shirts. How do you get like ordinary institutionalized religious studies scholars to buy into these ideas? Like, do you get any pushback? Is it widespread acceptance? Like, how does this go?
1: Um, it's been both. I, I've had some who have just just refused to engage. Um, I have had people be very, very aggressive and say, "You know, your sure punk is dead." <laughs> no. Um, I've had I've had people argue with me that you know punk is what they understood it as, although they were ne- they and they admit they were never a part of the subculture, but they happened to be alive at the time that it began. Mm-hmm. So of course they have ownership of it. So you do get things like that. Uh, but I've also had others said, you know, I'd never thought about it in this way before. So it, you, it does run that whole spectrum. In terms of getting them to buy it, I dress as I am. So I am straight edge, I am punk. Um, I hold those things as core to my identity, so I dress in that way. So it's not uncommon for me to get up and make a presentation and have X's on my hands. Um, I have multiple tattoos, Um I I usually wear band t-shirts. So I look like what I'm presenting anyway. Mm -hmm. So there is that kind of, the issue of authenticity then never really arises. One of the things that I deliberately decided to do was to not interview kids. So I made the rule that everyone that I interviewed had to be 25 or older, partly because nobody studies that group in relation to punk. Mm -hmm. There's a whole sense of punk's a youth movement. Well, yeah, but the youth grow up what are they doing when they grow up? So there is an interest in that anyway, but it also means when you're presenting at religious studies um, conferences, then they can't dismiss it as a, as a youth movement. It can't be just, oh no, they'll grow out of that. Well, no, they haven't. Here you have a 49 year old man talking to you with great passion.
0: So one of the things that I liked about your interviews was that age group because, you know, I could see people that were older than me and I'm 34 and, you know, I was going to shows in the late 90s, early 2000s and and still today. Um, But one of the things I enjoyed was whenever you put the question to people in the book, is Straight Edge a religion? And some people were like, you know, they would like almost flippantly say straight edge or uh, punk rock is my religion. And it was just so awesome because it was like said in this like fantastic way where they would just exclaim it in front of everybody. But then when you had like a formal interview, they seemed to be reticent to accept that label of punk rock or hardcore or straight edge as religion. What do you make of that pushback from the interviewees?
1: Part of that, I think, can be explained by the setting. So when you get the, the sort of the over-enthusiast like Karen did where he went running up and down the street, you know, that was very much in, in the spaces in which we inhabit. Yeah. So in that, that particular instance, we were standing outside uh, waiting for, it was a show in San Francisco, Alternative Tentacles were doing their, their anniversary. So we were standing outside and I just, I started talking to somebody and then someone else joined in the, and it became a group interview, but very informal in the queue. Other ones where they do that, you know, we were in Gilman Street or we were in Warzone. We were in the spaces that we occupy that we're comfortable. When with the formal interviews, you can't do them there because the acoustics don't allow for good recording. And some of the interviews were done via Skype. So there is that sense of, of not being in a, a space that you're familiar with or not being in a space that you feel entirely comfortable with. And you would see it in the body language as well. You know, they, they would start sort of rubbing tattoos and drumming or becoming quite agitated and things like that. Um, so th- that partly explains, it. I think, with the formal interviews, they're more prepared for reflection and, and they want to come across in a particular way. There's an element of performativity going on. And they know you're an academic, although you're clearly punk, you're also an academic and they want to impress you. So there is an element of, I need to, I need to think this through. I need to be clear on how I... Express myself, but I don't really want to commit to anything. In case you go somewhere, I can't follow. So I I think those two things explain it.
0: Gotcha. And what another thing that I really loved is that you are a member of the subculture, and this is like entirely intrinsic for you. It seems like this is like just a self-motivating thing. That like I almost feel like you would have done this even if there weren't a PhD attached to it.
1: Yes, I would have.
0: Yeah, like you would have been having these conversations no matter what. Yes. So one of the things I want to talk about is the explicit religiosity of some groups associated with straight edge. And for these, I'm thinking about like Krishna core mostly or Takwa core. So what are the connections between some of the most well-known straight edge bands who are also explicitly religious? And I mean, there are so many examples that you could list. Yeah,
1: there are. We could be here all night doing that. Yeah. I mean, the connections are, are sort of basically through individuals. So, Greg Capo, for example, you know, who became really, really popular within the straight edge scene, you know, through the bands that they had, the messages they were putting out, they were generally those who were very much involved with the positive elements of, of hardcore. And they, through their own experiences, through travel and through encounters with, with perhaps, with monks, they became aware of Hare Krishna movements, Um, Or, in Noel Levine's case, um, through his father and some of the Jack Cornfield and people like that, became aware of elements of of Buddhism. And so they they began their own journeys, but these are young people. And the first thing you do when you begin these journeys is you talk it over with your friends. But these are very influential young people, so they're not just going to talk it over with their friends, they're going to talk it over with the whole thing. Um, And so those conversations began to happen. And they hadn't happened before. They weren't there before. We, d- we didn't have that in hardcore. This was something new and Street Edge brought this in. And from there you get fragmentary um, scenes that then develop, such as Core, Dharma Punks, then Core, although that's very disputed. Um, but th- those ones that, that particularly come through. And then there's the Christian Punk, which had kind of always been there, but on the periphery. Never really accepted, but never really going away either.
0: Yeah. Um. Do you have any, like, recommended albums that you would suggest to listeners who might be interested in, you know, expanding their own musical horizons as far as, like, checking out something that's, like, explicitly religious but also punk? So, like, any, you know, Krishnakor or whatever albums that really stand out to you?
1: So anything, anything by Shelter.
0: Anything by Shelter, you really absolutely.
1: Can't, you cannot go wrong with Shelter. Uh, in terms of in terms of Tackle Core, I would recommend the Khamenees. They, they're sort of the most accessible, and they've also had the most following. and They've had the most written about them. But they're also interesting from a different perspective in that they are completely rejected by Indonesian punks, for mm. example, and a lot of um, Palestinian punks that I've spoken to as well. They reject them and say, well, actually, have to know that they're, they call them fake punk, um, fake punk Islam. And and they do, they very strongly stand against them. They they see it as a marketing technique. But I think that they're helpful for understanding what it's like for the group that are living in, particularly in New York, post 9-11. So I I would recommend them. In terms of of UK bands, we don't really have any that are explicitly religious. But what I would recommend is you check out bands from the 1970s, because that was when racism was rife in, in, in the UK. So bands like Eater who were having to deal with horrific uh, racism you know shops were being burnt down in all sorts and mm-hmm. life was not safe for them and they addressed that and they either were very very young they were 12 13 year olds um, but they're addressing that from their perspective
0: so as you know i recently was able to interview raganov capo or ray capo um, ...from Shelter, and we, ha- he and I had an amazing conversation about the Bhagavad Gita, and we really dove pretty deep into his understandings of the Bhagavad Gita as a Hare Krishna monk. And one of the things that I've been finding myself doing is listening to the Shelter album Mantra a lot, and there are—it's just so beautiful, the values that he um, lays out so clearly— and, I mean, the first song on the album is The Message of the Bhagavad. I mean, it's fantastic, and I would recommend that to anybody because it's pretty accessible music as well. It's not like it's, uh, you know, the fir- uh, Break Down the Walls from Youth of Today, which is so much more intense. Um, Shelter's a lot more melodic and accessible for easy listening. <laughs> so what was the most fun experience you had putting together this book?
1: Gosh, um... From oh, oh okay so from a fan point of view it w- it was getting to go to Gilman Street mm-hmm. so many of the bands that I love came from there you know, Operation Ivy Rancid Green Day everyone starts with Green Day yeah so there there was a I I remember walking in and and seeing the graffiti on the on the the walls and on the the lintels across the the, the roof at uh, Sweet Children which is what Greenway were originally called. I completely forgot why I was there. Mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't have told you a single thing about religion at that point. I couldn't have told you anything about why I was there. It was just complete fan moment. Um that that's for me That that always stands out as, as something I would not have got to do if I didn't hadn't done this PhD. Um, it's a it's a, a wonderful memory to have.
0: What were some of the greatest challenges you had putting together the book? Because putting together a book like this cannot be easy. I mean, this is this is a this is hard work. Like, what was the yeah, hardest it, thing about putting together the book?
1: I think the hardest thing for me was finding a balance between the academic voice and the voice of those that I was interviewing. Um, often books are one or the other, and I think that's a mistake. I think you have to. One can't drown out the other. There has to be a balance, but this is the first book I'd ever written. So finding that balance, I really struggled with that. Um, I'm used to writing for fanzines. I I do a lot of that, particularly Northern Irish fanzines. So I'm used to writing and you just have the punk voice. And every so often you go, oh, okay, I could throw in a book reference here. And then separately, I would write journal articles um, and, and essays as I was going through my own education but I hadn't com- really combined the two until I did the PhD. And then you're, you're trying to put this into a book and you're very aware that unlike the PhD, which is going to be read by you know, three scholars and probably your mom, although yeah. actually my mom has not read it. <laughs> she looked she looked at, she looked at the, the dedication to make sure her name was there and that was it. Um, but a book has to appeal not just to academics, but it has to work for students. It has to work for those who have no interest in, in academia, have no training in it, don't see any value in it, but want to know something about punk. So you're trying to hit all those audiences. So for me, it was, it was finding the right voice, and I don't always get it right. You know, There are times when academia drowns out some of what interviewees are saying, and there are times when there's maybe too many quotes. And so I don't always get it right, but yeah, that was the hardest for me.
0: So one of the things that I'm also thinking about just now is the way that religion changes over millennia, right? So it changes um, drastically based on social situations, based on demands of practitioners, and based on societal pressures that get placed upon it to grow and develop. So I want to tie that back into straight edge. Does anything about straight edge like frustrate you? Like, do you sit back and ever think, oh, I wish XYZ could be better about straight edge? Like, how do you see it developing and growing in the future um, to come?
1: I think, yeah, there are some things that frustrate me. And I started to play with them a bit in the book and then realized that they're actually a book on their own uh, in terms of gender and race. So I think straight edge hasn't yet learned how to acknowledge its own privilege how to acknowledge his own positionality, how to acknowledge the structural problems that we have within society, particularly in the West, um, around issues like race and gender. You know, I mean, for example, in in one of the religious groups that are affiliated with Straight Edge, um, there is an ongoing issue around sexual assault. Uh, somebody who's quite high up was, was named as, as having inappropriate sexual relations with somebody. And that's being investigated at the moment, and quite appropriately so. But on the... The Facebook uh, pages, on social media, interviews or emails and things with people, there are a lot of men who are coming out and said, oh well, I know he's innocent, but you don't know, you weren't in the room, the only people that know were in the room. So those kind of issues I think that yes there is a major problem that Straight Edge really needs to tackle and engage with and some of that is because the bulk of Straight Edge remains young people and to expect them to change systems to expect them to be fully aware is, is unrealistic but there is this body of people you know, my, my generation and above me we should know better you know and we should do better and as we start to raise children hopefully we will you know hopefully we'll imbue them with some of the qualities that are on the periphery of straight edge or are connected with the the commitment to straight edge and that will over time then then change things I Young people are are incredible in their capacity to change things, but you have to give them the right tools to do so. And I think that's that's where I see the future of Straight Edge.
0: So a lot of the people in the book were, as we mentioned earlier, reticent to accept the label of Straight Edge as religion. Where do you (laughs) fall in that debate? Because I was wondering that the whole time I was reading is like, how does Francis see Straight Edge? Is it religion or not? What do you think?
1: I deliberately don't say in the book. Okay, do um, you want me because,
0: to not ask that question? No, no,
1: no, it's fine, it's fine. Okay. I, just, I don't say in the book because the book isn't about me. And I think because you're an insider, there's there's a risk of making it too much about you. But for me, no, I don't think it is a religion. I think it's a successor to religion.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: It's a surrogate. Okay. And It's a form of implicit religion. It's both of those things. It's what's come next. And yeah. I'm really glad that it's come next. And I am so grateful to you, McKay, for, for starting this. You know, in so many ways, uh, but no, I don't think it's a religion, in the traditionally understood definition of what a religion is. But then I, I don't necessarily hold with the traditionally understood definition of religion. I think it's, it's problematic.
0: Excellent. So, where can people find you if they want to follow you and your work?
1: I am. I am based at the University of Stirling, which is in Scotland. So in the nice cold wet country yeah uh-huh. so i'm based there you can email me there i'm on twitter i i like to rant at people on twitter um or phone over their their pictures of, of people's houses
0: oh yes that was for you <laughs> that i dug through my archives for uh, for ian Mackay's discord house
1: yeah that was that was such a fanboy moment as well have you been there no, I have. I've never been to Washington.
0: Okay, well, when you go to Washington, it's so... Uh, all you have to do is just Google the address of Discord House, and mm-hmm. it's really easy to get to, and it's just on a little side street off of a very, very major road, and it's just right there. You just turn around the corner off of a main road, and voila, you're smack dab in the front of it.
1: And it still looks like like the house from the album cover.
0: Sure does. Sure does. Yeah.
1: I actually sat and looked at your picture for so long. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Oh, it's still the same.
0: Yeah, I think it's just the trees are are more are larger now. Yeah, that's about it. Um, yeah. What what's your uh, Twitter handle for people that may want to I'll get in touch that way?
1: And uh, it's Doctor F Sturt with the underscore between the F and the Sturt and the Doctor and the F. Excellent. I, can, I change it every now and then, but I think that's what it is.
0: Very good. Um, Dr. Francis Stewart, Punk Rock is My Religion, Straight Edge Punk punk and Religious Identity, out now from Rutledge. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today to come on Classical Ideas and talk about straight edge, religion, implicit religion, Edward Bailey, and much more. It's been a real pleasure having you. Oh,
1: the pleasure has been mine entirely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it.
0: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.